I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to chat with three-time Super Bowl champ Ted Johnson about the Patriots and the debacle that has been the Patriots season in just a little bit. Plus, a bad sign for the Red Sox that was predictable. We said it would happen on the pod, so I'll get to that in a little bit as well. But I want to get to the Celtics because just wrapping up a preseason game where everybody played. So it was an exciting game to watch. And I know it's only a preseason game. And Sean Grandy, of course, the great play-by-play guy for the Celtics, was joking around with me on Twitter where I was basically pointing out how good Derek White and Drew Holiday have been defensively from a statistical perspective. And he basically said, yeah, this is this is why Brian is so dialed in right now is because what's going on in Foxborough, to paraphrase essentially the tweet from Grandy. But that's how I felt. I don't know about you, but I've been like excited all day to watch the Celtics play in a preseason basketball game because we knew everybody was going to play in this particular game. And I do think a lot of it has to do with what's going on in Foxborough right now, that the Patriots are dead in the water, they're 1-5, and and you have a Celtics team that right now is the current favorite to win the NBA championship, so the excitement level is there. And before I get into specifics from this game, I was just thinking about this. When is the last time you've been this excited for a season for any team in town? And look, I totally understand the whole idea of Their other teams aren't great right now. Like the Bruins are going to have a good season. Like I said, a couple of times they're a playoff team, but I don't think they have real Stanley Cup aspirations. I think they're really good. And I didn't think they had Stanley Cup aspirations last year. And they set the record for the most points and the most wins. But my point being is the Red Sox are in a bad situation right now. The Patriots are in a rebuild and we'll see what happens with the Bruins this season. So I do feel like there's more attention on the Celtics, but it just brings me sort of the to the excitement level that you have to watch this team this year. I go back to the 14 Patriots I was really excited about because they got Revis and that was the hired gun that they needed at the cornerback position. 
and Gronk was coming back from the injury and it took him a little while, but you were excited about that. So I was really excited about the 14 team because Revis was so good for so long for the Jets before he went to the Bucks, the injury and all that. I was oddly really excited for the 17 season. I know the Patriots had just won the Super Bowl in 16, but remember in 17, you add a legitimate bona fide deep threat, of course, in Brandon Cooks, and you also brought in Stephon Gilmore on a big contract because you really haven't replaced Revis. I know you had Malcolm Butler, but you felt like, oh, this team's going to be even better. And we actually had conversations before that season. Could the Patriots actually go undefeated? Now, they did make it all the way to the Super Bowl. They lose to Philly, but we all know like the whole Malcolm Butler benching that season. It was weird. Weird dynamic with Tom and Bill that year. So I was really excited for that season just because of the moves. The 18 Red Sox were a big one for me just because I'm thinking about recent teams. They were big for me just because I felt like J.D. Martinez was going to be the perfect addition because remember what they had been missing was that middle of the order hitter and J.D. Martinez turned out to be one of the best sluggers in the sport that season. But remember the prior season, Mookie Betts, there were games where he was hitting in the cleanup spot and you're like, what the hell is going on? So I was really excited for the 18 team. And so... Obviously, the big ones in recent history, like nobody was more excited about the 07 Patriots, right? Like everybody was excited for that one. Randy Moss and Tom Brady are going to play together. Everybody was fired up for that one. Like that's number one on everybody's list in recent history, at least since the turn of the century. And then the 08 Celtics would be the other one because we went from being so upset that the Celtics didn't get one of the first two picks and they weren't going to be able to get Kevin Durant or Greg Oden And then all of a sudden it's like, well, they're trading for Ray Allen. What are they really going to do with Ray Allen and Paul Pierce? And then it's like, hold on, there's one more move to come. And it was Kevin Garnett, who's one of the greatest defenders in the history of the sport. And everybody was super excited for that. And they delivered. I mean, that team was an absolute wagon from start to finish. I feel like this one's a little bit different because when I talk about the 17 Patriots and when I talk about the 14 Patriots, Those teams that already won Super Bowls, or at least Brady had when we're talking about the Patriots guys in 14, most of the other players on the team besides like Will Fork in 14 hadn't won a Super Bowl. But 07, that was a team that had previously won three, but you get the idea. You had some guys still on the team. Rodney was still on the team. Brewski was still on the team, et cetera, a bunch of guys. But then the 08 Celtics, obviously, that was different because they hadn't won a championship since the Larry Bird Celtics. So I do think with this team, since... Yes, of course, and we'll get into this, the new additions, the Drew Holidays, the Kristaps Porzingis, you have the new additions, but a lot of the core, Tatum, Jalen Brown, Al Horford, Derek White, a lot of the same cores here that hasn't won a championship. So I almost feel like the 17 and 14 Patriots, there was a ton of excitement towards those teams, even the 18 Red Sox, because they had won in 13. This team, it feels like more pressure almost, but I just want to enjoy the season. I'm going to be excited to watch this team play 82 games during the regular year. So just from an excitement level standpoint, it delivered tonight, even preseason action. I feel like right now you watch the Patriots on a weekly basis, it becomes a chore. And watching the Celtics is really fun, even though it was a preseason game. And I'm not saying it was perfect, but just getting into some of the details, I thought tonight, one of the things that jumped out was Tatum. He was awesome in this game. He has 23 points in the first half. He had five rebounds in the first half. He had three assists in the first half. And for the game, he had eight rebounds. Remember, I told you, I thought he could average a double-double this season. Eight rebounds in the first three quarters of the game. I certainly think he can get to that number. And I should preface all this with, yes, the Knicks were playing their backups. But you can definitely take things away from this in terms of lineups. And, of course, Joe goes with 
Drew Holiday in the starting lineup in this game rather than Al Horford after the last time these guys were all together was Al Horford. But just on Tatum, he had a nice help block on Grimes, and then he dribbles up the floor and hits Derek White for a wide open three. One of the things that jumped out to me, and we've talked about the fact that from a physicality perspective, he just looks bigger. So that's something I noticed in tonight's game more so than the other preseason games he's played in is early in the first quarter, he has Grimes on him, brings him right into the post and scores on him. Then later on, he gets Evan Fournier on him, (laughs) our old friend Evan Fournier, who was the big move at the deadline, what, a couple of years ago in what, 2021, did absolutely nothing for the team. But nonetheless, my point being with Fournier is he gets him in a cross match in transition. So he just goes right into, he backs him in and he gets a foul. Then he gets right into the post off a rebound. And this is something that I've noticed that Tatum was doing in this game is this is something that LeBron used to do is what happens is, and LeBron still does it. I don't know why I said he used to do, but LeBron will get the outlet from the rebounder and he will dribble up the left side of the court. And if he gets a cross match, he is backing his defender. I'm talking about semi-transition, not like when you're on a, on a fast break and you have numbers. I'm talking about semi-transition off the live rebound. LeBron, if he gets a cross match, if he has a guard on him or a smaller defender, he'll go right into the defender, back him down. And I noticed Tatum was doing that in this game tonight, which can be a major weapon going forward for this team, because what that does is Tatum, as we saw in the game tonight, he can score over guys or... Eventually, you're going to have to help, which leaves an open three-point shooter. So that's something that I'm interested to watch going forward with Tatum this season. Because later on in the game, he got doubled in the post, and he saw the double coming. So he spun away from the double, and he got to the free-throw line. Then again, he backed Fournier down, and he finds Drew underneath the basket when the double came. So this is something certainly the Celtics can take advantage of. He got Jeffries on him, another small defender, powered right through him and scored. That's one thing that sticks out to me about Tatum. He just looks like he's a fully grown man. Not to say that he wasn't a grown man last year, but it looks like he's, for lack of a better term, he's going to weaponize his physicality this year. So I thought Tatum looked awesome in this game. One pass that really stuck out to me, or I should say two. So Tatum is in the right corner. He catches the ball and he spins away from a double. He sees the double coming from the baseline. So he spins away from the double. Jalen Brown is in the left corner. Now, Drew Holiday is on the left wing. And so the defender comes from Jalen Brown. That's the defender that comes to double. So when Tatum spins away from that, he can't make that pass right away because Dante DiVincenzo is on Drew Holiday. So Drew Holiday, really smart player, cuts to the basket. When he brings his defender, DiVincenzo, that leaves a wide open Jalen Brown for a three. And Tatum sees it, makes a great pass. Like not a lot of players can make that cross-court pass, but I also thought it sort of painted a picture of what Drew Holiday can bring to this team. Just a heady play. He knew, hey, if I bring my defender, this is going to be an easy three for Jalen Brown in the corner. And then at the end of the third quarter, Tatum threw a one-handed dart into Drew Holiday, who was in the post. Just a dart pass to Drew Holiday. Holiday then immediately kicks it to Al Horford for an open three in the corner. Now, Al missed the three, but it was a perfectly executed play. And, the, and Tatum actually did the Steph Curry thing. Like, he started going the other way as if Al was going to make it. He's going to realize, like, that's not Clay Thompson you're passing the ball to. But nonetheless, Al's a great three-point shooter and all that. This is not made to be taking a shot at Al. But that was a really nice pass by Tatum. All right, Jalen in this game, some good and some bad. And... This is a preseason game. I preface all this with the preseason game, but I saw some of the things that sort of can aggravate you about Jalen in this one. First of all, he's got to learn who he's playing with. So for some reason, he's in the corner 
and Drew Holiday is defending a guy at the wing, and he goes to help Drew Holiday when the player takes one dribble to his left hand, and I believe it was Grimes at the time that took this dribble to his left hand, and it's like, what are you doing? Just stay in the corner because then they give up wide open three. Why are you doing that? <laughs> it's Drew Holiday. He's fine, man. You don't have to help. Stay on your defender in the corner, and you wouldn't give it a wide open three, so that a- aggravates me. And then another thing he did, this is something he did all the time last year, is he dribbled for like 10 seconds. He got the ball at the right wing, and he just dribbled for like 10 seconds, and he wasn't doing anything. He didn't look like he was trying to go to the basket. He wasn't looking to take a step back, jump, or anything along those lines. He's just dribbling. So he's just eating up 10 seconds of the shot clock, and then he kicks it back out to the top of the key. He comes across, gets the ball at the left wing, eats up more time, and takes a step back three. That's just bad offense. Jalen is too good of a player. So if you're on the right wing, make a move or pass the ball. Okay, one of the two things. Don't just dribble for no reason. Move the ball quickly, okay? That's what you need to be doing. So that aggravated me. But then after that next possession, what does he do? Gets the ball on the wing, kicks it to Pritchard, quick three, Pritchard nails it. That's good offense, okay? Then he gets Grimes on him, a smaller defender. What's he do? Takes him into the mid-range, pump fake, Grimes goes by him, gets to the free throw line with a foul. Then he had a hard drive to his right, massive dunk. So this is the thing about Jalen. When he makes quick decisions, he's really, really good. And he's this is why he got a max contract. He's one of the most athletic players in the NBA. But it's these things that he does once in a while where it's like, what are you doing, man? Just get rid of the ball or make a move. And the stuff on defense, that's just, you got to learn how to play with Drew Holiday because we saw later on in the game where he gets Al on a screen and then he finds Drew Holiday for a wide open three. Now, when he found Drew Holiday for a wide open three, I don't know why DiVincenzo is doubling out of the corner. This is something I blame Jalen for earlier in this game. But DiVincenzo makes it an easy read for Jalen, but that's good offense. Hey, a defender's coming to W, or a W, and then you find a quick outlet to a shooter. That's what you need to do. So that's my biggest thing that I'm watching for Jalen this year is the attention on the defensive side of the floor and the attention to details. If Drew Holiday is defending somebody, don't help. Okay, don't, especially if you're on the shooter in the corner. That's something that cannot happen, especially this is more of a concern when you get into the playoffs and stuff along those lines. And then offensively, it just, can you be decisive with your decision making? Because if he's decisive, he's going to avoid these turnovers that have been part of his game for so long. And like I said, this is not meant to be a shot at Jalen. It's just some of the stuff that I've noticed and some of the stuff that has aggravated us over the past couple of years. But that to me was like, come on, man, this stuff cannot continue to happen. All right. Derek White, before I get into anything about him in this game, I thought, he typical Derek White game, but I, I thought that he made a really nice move where he drives, help comes, and then he finds Pritchard, and then Pritchard gets a wide open three out of it. Just really, Derek White's a heady player. We know all this. The one interesting thing to me about Derek White, not specific to this game, but specific to this season, is is he going to get an extension? I believe the Celtics now have until the 23rd, which I believe is what, Monday, to get a deal done? Here's what Derek White said about that today. I love it here. It's been great being a Celtic. That'll never change whether I sign before the season or not. If it happens, great. If not, I'm still excited for the season to be here. Two years left on his current deal at 70, so it's not like he's leaving anytime soon. He's eligible for, I believe, three for $85 million. If it's me, you know how I feel. As the president of the Derek White fan club, sign him. Just get this deal done. And that's one thing. And B-Rob actually mentioned this last week when he was with us. Brad's done a really good job of this, of extending the core guys, right? Eventually, Drew Holiday is going to get his extension. Tatum gets his super max after 
Next year, Jalen Brown already has his extension. They extended Al during last season. Porzingis got his extension. So I do think they'll eventually take care of Derek White. He's just too important going forward. And any contract you give Derek White, it's going to be value later down the road if you knock on wood, this never have to happen, but you have to trade Derek White or you have to trade Drew Holiday. Those guys are going to have good contracts in terms of the value they have on the market, especially White, who's younger than Drew Holiday. Remember, as I mentioned, he's just entering his 29-year-old season. All right, Porzingis, I continue to be impressed by him. (laughs) He just opens up so many things right at the beginning of the game. This is, a I give Joe Mazzulla credit for this, a play at the beginning of the game where he has Drew go into the post, Tatum finds Drew, and then they have to go help on Drew because Drew's got a small diminutive guard in him. Drew is a massive individual for a guard, kicks it out to Porzingis, open three in the corner. Next possession, or a couple possessions later, I should say, hits an above the break three. He screened for Jalen, and then on the short roll, caught it, hit a mid-range jumper. So hitting threes, then hitting mid-rangers on the short roll. He caught a lob from Pritchard, which is a nice lob from Pritchard as well. Two more, two-man game with Porzingis and Pritchard as well. He cuts, does Porzingis, or I should say not Porzingis. So Pritchard's at the top of the key. He throws the ball to Porzingis at the foul line. Pritchard, very smart play, just sprints. What does Porzingis do? Just hits him with the ball, and then Pritchard finds Al for a wide-open three that Al hits. And then after that, he screens for Pritchard, pops for an open three, knocks down a three. So three straight plays, a two-man game with Pritchard. He catches a lob. He finds Pritchard who finds Al for a three, and then he screens, hits his own three. He hit four threes in this game. He finished with 20 points in 28 minutes, eight of 13 from the field, nine boards. And I'll get into this in a second here. It's just... and. We've been over this. The idea of moving him from Brogdon was a steal to begin with, but you do the same thing over and over again if it's Marcus Smart. First of all, I don't think Smart's going to age well, but secondarily, he just brings a different dimension that Mar- Marcus Smart couldn't. It's so obvious how much he already does for the offense, and we've only seen him play in the preseason. He just unlocks so many things for your team, and I'll get into, into that in greater detail, but man... He's so fun to watch. You can tell he's just really happy to be here. And the release on the three, that thing is so quick, and he's doing it at 7-4. He's never going to get blocked when it comes to that. As for Drew, I thought he was a little sloppy with the ball early in this game, but I thought he made some really nice plays where he gets a steal where he reads the pass where Grimes is driving, and he reads that Grimes is going to try to kick the ball out, and he just goes to where the cutter is and steals the ball. It's one of these things where... He's a really heady player. He also nutmegged Evan Fournier, which led to, he nutmegs him on in transition, then finds Pritchard for an open three. I don't know what Fournier, apparently like they're trying to get him playing time so he can go somewhere else. I don't know what value he has on the market. And then he got around DiVincenzo for an and one where he just sort of overpowered him. And then later on in the game, hard drive into a short mid-ranger where he spun around his defender, gets into that mid-range area, And it's more of a push shot. And one of the things that stuck out to me, I was looking at his numbers two years ago. This is via cleaning the glass. He hit 49% of his mid-rangers, which was in the 94th percentile. The numbers were down a little bit last year, but you can tell he sort of got that little push shot. And that's something you can obviously use in a massive way in the postseason. When the offense breaks down, you need guys that can hit tough twos. Holiday has proven throughout his career he can do that. All right, interesting first substitutions of the game for the Celtics. So Joe goes with Hauser and Al for Tatum and White. So basically you have four shooters, 
Porzingis, Al, Drew, and Hauser all around Jalen, and then you have that additional playmaker in Drew Holiday as well. These are the lineups I like to see when you don't have Tatum on the court, because I've predicted I believe the non-Tatum minutes are actually going to be good this season, which they haven't been throughout Tatum's career. But that lineup makes a lot of sense because you do have one additional playmaker in Drew Holiday who would be the main facilitator and the point guard, right? Where Derek White's not there and, of course, Jason Tatum, who is a facilitator as well. But you have a finisher in Jalen, but you have Drew Holiday to handle the playmaking duties. And then you surround him with shooting, which opens up all the lanes for Jalen Brown. So I really like that lineup. Second lineup, and they only use this briefly. Tatum came back into the game with Drew, and this is a massive lineup. They had Tatum, Drew Holiday, Al Horford, Porzingis, and Hauser. I mean, that is massive in terms of how big that lineup is. The smallest guy is Drew, and what's Drew? Like 6'4". That is a huge lineup. Now, you you could run into some issues defensively there, but that was interesting just to see that lineup out there where Tatum is basically the second, the like two guard in that lineup because Hauser is more of a three, but you get the point. And then the third lineup, they bring in, you get Pritchard and White with Tatum, Allen, Hauser, which that lineup, even with Al Horford, can play really fast. And that lineup just has so much spacing with White and with, especially with Tatum, Pritchard, and Hauser and Al Horford, you just have so much spacing. It just kind of points out the tools that Joe Mazzulla has from an offensive perspective, even without Porzingis, like one of the best spacing bigs in the NBA, you still can throw out a lineup that has all shooters with Tatum, White, Richard Allen Hauser that from an offensive perspective this team is absolutely loaded and they can be so diverse and then you think about Missoula in this game a nice little wrinkle if you notice at the end of the first quarter after they made a couple of free throws he puts on a press Tatum gets a steal out of the press and it leads to a Pritchard three so that's something to look for this year will they start to do this a little bit more often where, hey, NBA teams are not used to getting pressed very often. I mean, it's difficult to press like NBA guards. You're not going to press a guy like Kyrie Irving. But every once in a while, throw that wrinkle in to catch the team off guard and you got a three out of it. Third quarter, they're getting outscored 23 to 13. And they got a little bit sloppy in the third. They closed the third strong, but they got a little bit sloppy. Joe calls a timeout, gets them back on track. They go on a nice little run. Joe weaponizing the timeout. Who would have thunk it? And then it's 100 to 85 at the end of the second or at the end of the third quarter. And it didn't work out. But 31.2 seconds left in the quarter, 1.4 seconds left in the shot clock. Joe calls a timeout to try to dial something up. Now, give Tibbs credit. Tibbs put a 2-3 zone in. I don't know if most a lot of teams go to a 2-3 zone when it's that low in the shot clock and it's out of bounds on the baseline. Most teams will do that, especially at the collegiate level. But NBA teams are doing it now as well. But you still got an open jumper for Jalen out of it, which I thought is a smart idea. Call a timeout. And this is, remember, this is only Joe Mazzulla's second year in the NBA as well. So he's in a position right now where, hey, this is a time in the regular season where I would like to use the timeout, dial something up. So I thought it was good that he's taking advantage of this time in the preseason. Pritchard, one thing I noticed about Pritchard defensively, he's picked up a trick from Derek White. I don't know if it's not really a trick, but he's doing a really good job getting around screens, which Derek White is arguably the best guy in the NBA doing it. But the big man comes up. It was Mitchell Robinson to set the screen for Pritchard. Pritchard immediately just gets around the screen and gets on the other side to where, I believe it was Grimes he was covering. It was Grimes or McBride, one of those two guys. But that's something Derek White is so good at. So I got to think like just from being around him all the time. He picks up on some of those things. So that's nice. And then he found, as I mentioned earlier, found Porzingis for that lob. And then he had the nice cut from Porzingis, found Al. We mentioned we are talking about Porzingis. But Pritchard, I love the pace that he plays with. And 
Obviously, he brings shooting. I believe he's going to have a really good season. I went over that the other day, so I don't want to get into Pritchard in great detail. Hauser has been a little bit more consistent now over the past couple of games in terms of his shooting. One thing I noticed tonight, which is going to be important for him in terms of being a weapon offensively, at one point in tonight's game, defender closes on him. He takes a couple dribbles to his left, and then he's able to find Al for an open three. And I'm not saying he needs to put the ball on the floor very often. You want him out there as a spacer. But every once in a while, you got to be able to drive closeouts. And that's something that Grant started to do a little bit last year. Now, Grant could get a little out of control. Like when he started getting downhill, he didn't really have control of his body. But if Hauser can do that, right, you get a defender closing out on you. You give him an up fake. You take a couple of dribbles to your left. And then you put the defense. The defense gets in the blender. And that's what we saw. And in this particular case, it directly led to a three. So that's... An interesting thing to monitor this season with Hauser, can he at least drive closeouts? We're not asking him to drive to the basket and finish through contact. Just can he drive a closeout and then find the next pass, so to speak? All right. The offense in general, a 157.7 rating in the first quarter, which is just ridiculous. They had 78 points in the first half. They had 24 assists when they pulled Al and Chris Stops, where those are the only regular, well, Pritchard's a regular, but you get my point. As Chris Stops started, Al didn't start, but... Out of the top guys, when they pulled him, they had 24 assists, so they would have probably ended up with 30, more than that, if they kept the guys in the game. So one of the things that sticks out to me, despite the fact they were a little loose with the ball, as I mentioned earlier, they really they would have had, they, I mean, they, they were sloppy. It's a preseason game. They haven't played a ton together. You get all that. They made up for it with their shooting, but that's the only concern you would have about the offense in this particular game. I just feel like they can be so much more diverse. I think if you just look at the first quarter, or excuse me, the first half, they generated eight threes, which those are like the shots you want to take, corner threes and layups. They hit six of those eight threes. And if you go back to last season, the Dallas Mavericks led the league with 11.5 corner threes per game in terms of attempts. The Celtics took eight in the first half. And as I said, I get all this. It's with backups, but it's the way they were creating them, right? It's the drive and kick. It's the pass into the paint for Drew Holiday, who's posting up a smaller guard and kicking it out to Porzingis for a corner three. So you're just seeing already how much they're how much of a better job they're doing creating better three-pointers, right? The other thing I'd mention about Porzingis, you look at him last year, this is via cleaning the glass. With Porzingis on the court, Washington shot 73.1% from the at the rim. 73.1% at the rim. That was in the 97th percentile because he's bringing defenders out of the paint, right? And if you look at it 2.6 percentage points better with him on the court than off the court. That was in the 81st percentile. So that number, it's not some fluky number. The reason that number is so high, the 73.1% is because of Porzingis. The spacing should open up driving lanes, or I should say the spacing should open up driving lanes. And the screening will be a major weapon getting guys downhill. And even that little pass at the free throw line we saw from Pritchard, that's another weapon because then you can just have the guard sprint towards Porzingis, get the ball back. And then he's either going to the basket or he's kicking to somebody in the corner. So there's just so many different things you can do with Porzingis. I believe the drives for the Celtics are going to have to go up this year, and I think they will just because the spacing is so much better. Last season, the Celtics just 46.8 drives per game. That was 15th in the NBA, and they shot 52.6% on their drives, which was the fourth best in the NBA. So you'd like that number to go up, and I think it will, especially. And I know I keep going back to this, but Porzingis opens up so much for this offense. So just little bit a little bit of a metric man breakdown of the Celtics offense so catch and shoot threes last year the Celtics attempted 30 per game which is good catch and shoot threes you want to be taking those right that was the second most in the NBA 
and they shot 39%. That was fifth in the NBA. Really good numbers. Pull-up threes, though, they took 11.8. As we mentioned, Tatum shot south of 30% on pull-up threes last year. 11.8 pull-up threes per game. That was the third most in the NBA. And they shot just 33.7%, which was 15th, which is not nearly good enough. So one of the things that Joe Mazzulla said on media day is they want to use more post-ups, which that makes a ton of sense. If you go back to last season, the Celtics just 3.8 post-ups per game, 26th, 1.7 field goal attempts on post-ups, 24th, and just 2.4 points per game on post-ups, which was 22nd. Porzingis last year, 3.4 post-ups per game, 1.18 points per possession, 58% from the field on post-ups, four points per game off post-ups, which was tied for fifth in the NBA, and the efficiency that was in the 89th percentile. Jason Tatum, we've told you about him and his post-game, and we saw this tonight with Tatum. Those are, it's not technically like he's posting up and getting the ball, but he's getting into the post. He's getting into the block in those semi-transition situations where he's just taking advantage of the smaller defender. Tatum last year, just 1.4 post-ups per game, but 1.22 points per possession, 55.6%, 1.7 points per game, 94th percentile. If you look at some of the other guys, the forwards in this league, Luka, 3.6 per game, Durant, 2.8 per game, LeBron, 2.6 per game, Tatum, just 1.4 per game. And what we saw in this preseason game, he's going to play in the post more, which I think is a major weapon for this team. So instead of this team having to settle for these pull-up threes, if the offense isn't working, you have guys that can take advantage of smaller defenders. So I think that's a big thing. And what that's going to do when we see, even... Tonight, we saw post-ups from small players, not small players in like in the common world, but small players in terms of NBA guys. Drew Holiday, the first play of the game, they're posting him up. He's getting in the post and he's kicking out to an open three-point shooter. So getting the ball in the paint and then kicking it out for open threes, those will provide more threes from the catch-and-shoot variety, less pull-up threes. Because one of the things, they have to be better when their threes aren't falling. If you go back to last season, the Celtics, they started off the season unbelievably well. 21 and 5. Remember that? 119.9 offensive rating, which is by far the best in the NBA. The Suns were second at 116.3. Okay, and then you go after that 21 and 5 start to the season. The Celtics go 36 and 20, which is still obviously a great record, but the offensive rating goes to 116, which is still good, but it was ninth compared to being the best in NBA history prior to that. Well, what was the difference? In that 21 and 5 start, they shot 40% from three. Best in the league, right? In that latter stretch of the season, the 36-20, and 20, the largest stretch of the season, they shot just 36.6% from three, okay? And then you look at the makes, they were still second during that stretch, first in the prior stretch, but it's the consistency, right? You go from hitting 40% of your threes to 36.6%. So what that happens, what happens there is your half-court offense is not the same. So via cleaning the glass, the half-court offense in that 21-5 and stretch was 108.4, which was by far the best in the NBA. In fact, Dallas was at 103. You were at 108.4. After that, though, the 36-20 and stretch, you were 101.2, which was 11th. So the winning percentage after that 21-5 and start went from 808 down to 643, which is fine. 643 is a really good number. You're going to be a top-three seed in the East, but still really good but not out of this world like we saw earlier in the season. The offensive rating dipped 3.9 points per possession in eight spots. The half-court offense, as we mentioned, 7.2 points per 
100 possessions worse in 10 spots. That's the lack of consistency when you're three-point shooting when you go from 40% to south of 37%. And if you go to the playoffs, in six of their playoff losses, they shot less than 35%. In eight of their nine playoff losses, they shot less than 39%. So what Porzingis does, and now with Tatum putting on the weight and getting into the post, with Drew Holiday's ability to score in the mid-range, with Drew Holiday's ability to sort of overpower smaller guards... This is going to provide more diversity in the offense and not make you so reliant on the three. It's great to take a ton of threes, right? That's the percentages tell you to take a lot of threes, but you have to be a little bit more diverse when you get into trouble. So what we've seen through the preseason and when the guys are actually playing together, the main guys on the team, you're seeing it. There is more diversity to this offense, which is massive going forward for this team. So that's what has me feeling really optimistic. They're not going to start the season the same way that they did last year with a offensive rating north of 119. But I think what we're going to see, there is going to be less valleys in this offense, right? There's going to be more consistency from start to finish when at times last year, it's like, why are you taking so many threes? Get to the free throw line or get into the post. There's other ways to score. I don't think this team is going to have this problem this season because of the personnel they know have, they now have. Uh, one of the things that stuck out to me too, and this is just a side note. Abby Chen was doing, of course, the sidelines on the local broadcast. Sam Cassell said he the goal is for the Celtics to hold teams to 25 points a quarter. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's a great goal. But Miami was last in the NBA last year in points per game at 109.5. Like, if we're going to come up with a goal for how many points you're going to allow teams to score in a quarter, can we be realistic about it or put a percentage on it rather than a 25 point? Yeah. So you're going to keep teams scoring to what teams are scoring in the 90s. I mean, come on. Love Sam Cassell, but that's a ridiculous, crazy idea. All right, so that was a lot of fun. I I cannot wait for the Celtics, as I said. And man, just great to have basketball back. And we're basically a week away from the season getting underway against the same Knicks team, although the Knicks are going to have a lot of their starters. So I could not be more fired up for this season. And it was great just enjoying some preseason basketball, even if it's of the preseason variety. It was a lot of fun. All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, we'll chat with three-time Super Bowl champ Ted Johnson about the current state of affairs in Foxborough. Get ready to start the NFL week off right, because right now, all customers can get a no-sweat same-game parlay for Thursday night football. Just place a three-leg same-game parlay on this week's game between the Jaguars and the Saints, and you'll get bonus bets back if you don't win. And I know Trevor Lawrence has been banged up. I expect him to play in this game. So I'm going with this. This is for plus 404. I like the Jaguars in this game. The Saints defense is good. Their offense stinks. Don't get thrown off by what they did against the Patriots because everybody plays well against the Patriots. So how about this for plus 404? Jaguars alternate spread. They cover three and a half. Okay, obviously they're dogs in this game. Under for the game, 39 and a half. And the Jaguars... One and a half point dogs in the first half. So you have the Jags to just keep it within two points in the first half. The Jaguars to cover for the game three and a half points and under 39 and a half for the game. So that's my three leg parlay for Thursday night football at plus 404. NFL same game parlays are the perfect way to combine your bets for a chance at a bigger payday. Build your own or choose from one of the popular SGPs pre-built for you in FanDuel's top rated sportsbook app. Visit FanDuel.com slash Pike so you don't miss out on your chance to get a no-sweat same-game parlay on America's number one sportsbook. FanDuel, official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21-plus in president select states. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. 
Max refund $5 unless otherwise specified. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, three-time Super Bowl champ Ted Johnson. You see him on NBC Sports Boston, hosts The Playbook with Phil Perry on Monday nights. You also hear him on 98.5, The Sports Hub. And Ted, speaking of three-time Super Bowl champ, how many of these guys on the Patriots offense would actually play on your team? Maybe, maybe Trent Brown and David Andrews. I'll take those two guys, uh, uh, but uh, the rest uh, I could probably do without. <laughs> You're not kidding. It's bad. So before we get into some of the specifics, your former teammate, Teddy Bruschi, was on ESPN's pregame show on Sunday saying that he wants Bill to retire. He said that the Shula thing does not matter. And then he doubled down on Monday morning. He went on Get Up and he said, quote, to start the game with two penalties to finish the game with three penalties, that's a sign that Bill isn't reaching these guys. So there are a lot of layers to what Bruski said, basically in a 48-hour period, but or a 24-hour period. But first of all, he was like the leader of that first dynasty, right? So like the the first thing he said on Sunday, my takeaway is he knows that this isn't fixable, and he knows there isn't a quick fix, and he doesn't want to see Bill continually embarrass himself. That's what I took away from his original comments. Not that he said that specifically, but I don't think he wants this to keep going in this direction for Bill because he cares about the guy that he played for for all those years. But the second part for me, where he said on Monday, the penalties that Bill's not getting through to these guys, that's the worst thing that can happen to a coach. And for Teddy Bruschi to say that on ESPN, that Bill's not getting through to those guys, that's really an indictment on where the organization is at and where the coaching staff is at right now. Yeah, you won't find a more loyal soldier uh, than, than, than Teddy Bruschi when it comes to the Patriots organization. He'll, he'll basically defend everything they do more more times than not even though it's clearly uh a lot of times you know not uh not defendable but he he's it is it is interesting uh that he would do that i mean it's just kind of add him to the list of former players that have been loyal soldiers for the, the patriots being outspoken and and saying that the team needs to go in a new direction and it's it it, it is it's pretty profound and, and uh this week to me brian what happened this week is kind of the tipping point. And I think this is going to be a week in which there's going to be, you know, montages made. And when you're going to look back in history, you're going to point to maybe this this week as being the the low point in kind of the, you know, the the second chapter or the third chapter, if you will, of, of this this organization, you know, post Tom Brady. As it's just really the lowest point. And I think uh, it's hard for even – Again, the most loyal soldiers uh, that that uh, you know played for the Patriots that are now in the media. It's hard for them to defend what's going on. Uh, you, it's it's in, indefensible, and so for Teddy to say that, it's uh, it is kind of uh, eye opening, and so we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, but it's it's bad times right now in Foxborough, and it it just the tipping point was certainly you know this week. Uh, and how they lost that game, three in a row. Starting over, the narrative all week long, Brian, was they were going to start over. <laughs> I saw no evidence of them starting over and and really no life in this team at all from the jump. And so Bill's clearly – he hasn't he hasn't really, I think, gotten to his guys for a long time. I don't think they've responded the way he's wanted for, for not only, you know, this year, but – You've seen little, little by little by little, ever since Tom left, less and less buy-in, and it's at its uh, the precipice of that right now. 
Well, it looks like the Joe Judge t-shirts aren't working either. What did they say? Like, nobody else is coming. It's just us. Well, you may want some other guys in the building. Like, some other guys may be able to help the team. But to Teddy's original point, I mean, the plays that you're working on all week, right? Like, the scripted plays at the beginning of the game. Back-to-back penalties, a drop, and then you're running the ball on third and 15. Like, this is the stuff, to your point about starting over, you've been working on this all week. You can't even execute the first two plays of the game because you have penalties. I mean, that's just mind-numbing to me. That's like should be the one area where at least the Patriots offense can do something, and it can't even do that at the beginning of the game, which to me, once that happened, I'm like, you know what? They're not winning this game. Even though they made it close, they made it competitive. I knew, like, right then and there, it's like, this yep. is the same shit we see every week with this team. Yeah, same same shit, um, just different game. So it's and I, and I, it's 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 amazing to me. I mean, there's just... It, you're just not seeing – you haven't seen a buttoned-up operation for a long time. Clearly, in that, in those, that goes to coaching, Brian. I mean, you know, coaching, there's a, there's several examples of of kind of bad coaching that you'll see, um, in, you know, in this last game. It clearly, a slow start, the penalties, is the number one indicator. I mean, this team – you and I have been talking about slow starts from this team for all season long um, because it, it, was, it was an issue last year for this team, getting off to uh, fast starts. Um, and then this year, it's carried over into into this year. And so, the that getting off to slow starts is clearly a coaching issue. Situational football is a coaching issue. Two minute uh, third down, the Patriots defense was terrible on third down. You saw that. You know, you want to say four minute offense that the Patriots ran. That was a nine and a half minute offense that they ran. That <laughs> it was an literally. <laughs> they just situationally they they can't get it. They just can't get it done. Um, and, and, and really those two things are, you know, and then bad special teams, that's always an indicator for bad coaching. There's just signs of bad coaching everywhere, everywhere you look and mix that in with, with deficiencies in the roster. And you have this utter train wreck that we are seeing week in, week out. And, it, and it's amazing how really, you know, how the national people are kind of at this point now realizing what we've all been seeing, you know, that follow this team closely, you know, the last couple of years, you know, they're like a couple of years behind the rest of us, but everyone now is seeing it. And so the heat has just been turned up to a level that we've never seen before now from the national media. Yeah. That long drive, congratulations to the Patriots for scoring a touchdown because they don't do that very often. But the fact that there was no urgency there was just incredible to me. I don't know what they thought. Did they not realize they were down two scores? How much time are you going to take off the clock? Like they took forever just to get to the line of scrimmage. Like the basic things for this team right now are so difficult to execute. And then you look at the final drive of the game. How do you get a delay of game? On the final drive of the game, you get a delay of game. It's unbelievable the mistakes this team makes. And you know what's interesting is the, the that last series I found interesting because there were there was a delay game. There was there was a, a clock stoppage. They had to go to a uh, commercial. I for, I forget for something else. Like there were opportunities to change the personnel group is what I'm trying to get at. Um, you know they had two and a half minutes to go just to get in field goal range. So they had 60 yards to go in two and a half minutes. No timeouts. But still, when you just need a field goal to win, not a touchdown, um, and you got to go 60 yards. Having no timeouts is is with the two minute warning still sitting there is not that big of big of a deal. It's not something they couldn't do. They never changed their personnel grouping. They kept the same guys out there. Hunter, I mean, excuse me, Mike Kosecki was out there instead of Hunter Henry. They went eleven personnel 
with Devontae Parker, Tyquan Thornton, Kendrick Bourne, and Mike Gusecki and Ramondre Stevenson. And they never changed that personnel grouping in that last series. It was four plays. If you add that penalty, that was five plays. And they never once changed it. And I just thought that was interesting that that was where they had, and they ran almost the exact same formation. So there was no creativity, um, no mixing of personnel groups. Why wasn't Hunter Henry out there? Why was Mike Kosecki out there? There was just these, it's unbelievable the decisions that are being made. Um, and and there's, I, I just don't, I don't understand it. And they had an opportunity to maybe be creative there, put different groupings out there. They have no creativity and no maybe options to be creative. So uh, it's it's an absolute hot mess right now for this team. Well, and you mentioned Devontae Parker, and I've never really been a fan of his game. And I didn't think that something could happen worse to Devontae Parker after dropping that ball, but it did, the way that he handled himself in his post-game, I don't want to say press conference, but media scrum, if you will. In the locker room, they asked him what happened on the deep ball. He said, they said, you looked like you got behind the coverage. He said, I don't know. What did you see? And then he said, yeah, that's just what happened. I was behind the coverage. Did you get your fingers on the ball? My fingertips, I think I didn't get a full grasp on it, whatever the hell that means. Do you feel like that's a ball you can catch? Uh, I think so. Fingertips, I don't know. Okay. Can you imagine if Gronk or Edelman or James White or going back to your teams, Troy Brown, Deion Branch saying something like that after the game? You know... I don't know. I had my fingertips on it, right? It just speaks of a lack of leadership. And this is a guy that's averaging a career worst in yards per reception at 10.5, a career worst at 27.2 yards per game. The Patriots gave up a third round pick for the guy and they extended him. He has now taken back his crown as the worst separator in the league. Next Gen has it at 1.9 yards in terms of when he's targeted of separation. Dead last, 22 he was last, 2021 he was last, 2020 he was tied for last. He's one of the worst separators in the NFL. And he's never been a guy that fits Mac's skill set where you need guys that can create after the catch because Mac is limited as a passer, so to speak. So you want these guys like Kendrick Bourne that can actually do things after the catch. And then just the way that he handled himself after the game, I was already out on Parker, but like from my perspective, I don't even want to see him on the field anymore. At this point, you're one and five. Just play the young guys. Just play Thornton. Just play Douglas when he comes back from the concussion. Just play Booty. Just play, I mean, Kendrick Bourne, you got to continue to advertise him because you can probably get some value back for him in return at the trading deadline. But I just go youth movement. There's no reason for Parker to be here because he's obviously not a leader and he's not a good player. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, maybe putting Kayshawn Booty. Well, Kayshawn Booty's, you know, putting out on Twitter that he wants to be freed, you know, from the organization. So here's, it's so, it's a it's a mess even with the young guys. But you mentioned, <laughs> you know, would, would, would Edelman say, would Devontae Parker say, would Gronk say that, would, would Deion Branch, and, and it's the perfect – I think Devontae Parker, Parker is the perfect guy as an example to use for what's going on wrong here. Is this guy – you you mentioned all his his previous production in previous years. He has been trending downward from even when he was at Miami to the New England Patriots to now. He's gotten worse and worse and worse and worse. And then you give him an extension. What message is that sending the rest of the, to the to the locker room? And then also, you know – He's I think he what he didn't realize is that the bill communicates in ways he doesn't tell you exactly what he's thinking. He gives you a new contract and then he expects you to be the loyal soldier because I gave you a, a new contract. But Devontae Parker didn't get the memo. He's still being an a-hole. <laughs> and like, you know, he's you know, he, he's he's above reproach and criticism. 
And that's the that's the problem is you're giving guys contracts. When you give a guy an extension, you're you're basically telling the team, that's the kind of guy I want on this team. That that, that guy's attitude, that guy's work ethic, his how he goes about his job, that's the kind of guy I want. That's what you're saying to your team when you sign a guy to a contract like that. And yet he's the complete opposite. And he's been the complete opposite. And Bill still rewards him. It's the perfect example of what's wrong with this team is Devontae Parker, especially when you look at – and you want to throw Juju Smith-Schuster in there? Fine. Those two guys are perfect examples because you see what Jacoby Myers did, who you used to have uh, for you know, the previous four years. Who All he did was produce for you and make nothing. And, and you get rid of him and you bring in these guys, it's – I mean, that's that's what you have right now. And and you just have a bunch of individual hired mercenaries, you know, getting their money and wanting to get the hell out of here. You don't have a team. It's so obvious. And you haven't had one, quite frankly, for a few years. Yeah, my working theory on the Jacoby thing is, remember after the Monday night game against Chicago, where essentially he stuck up for Mac, he said he didn't really... He would have yep. kept it. He, to paraphrase, he was basically he dis, he was shocked by the decision that they had Mac play for three series. So I'm I'm wondering if that was sort of part of the calculus when they decided to let him go. It didn't hurt. I guarantee you the way Bill <laughs> Belichick thinks that was uh, you don't you don't speak out against the family. You don't criticize. You, you, if if we treat you poorly and 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 we do we mess up and we we got a lot of toxic things that are going on behind the scenes. You don't say any of that. Or else you'll pay the price, and you will eventually pay the price somehow, some way. Bill, Bill will abuse his power. Um, I've been saying that for a long time, and that's you do not speak out against the family, even though when there there's clear and obvious reasons to, because you will pay the price. And and Jacoby Myers, like a lot of other people, found that out. Yeah, and to the Parker point that you made, it is interesting. Parker gets the extension, and the guy that is the much superior receiver, Kendrick Bourne, didn't get the extension. Kendrick Bourne had an issue with Matt Patricia last year and was in Matt right. Patricia's doghouse, so you can kind of put the pieces together there. So right. I want to ask you about this because I thought this was interesting. The Pats go down, of course, they're down 13-3 to at halftime. It's one of the rare games in recent weeks where they're in it. They're actually in the game. So they come out of half, they put together a nice drive, 10 plays, 75 yards, Ramondre had a 15-yard run, Zeke an 8-yard run, Zeke a 6-yard run. The drive ended, of course, with that Zeke touchdown where they had Malik Cunningham on the field. But what I don't understand is where you're at in the game, right? So Ramondre finishes 10 for 46, 4.6 yards per carry, a rare good Ramondre game. Zeke 7 for 34, 4.9. As a team, they only ran the ball 19 times. Mack threw the ball 30, uh, 33 times. The Raiders, prior to that game, they came into the week 25th in success rate against the run. They were allowing 129.4 yards per game, which is 23rd. And what I don't understand in that game specifically, like the other games, I understand why they couldn't run the ball, right? They're down by three, four touchdowns. But in this game specifically, I, I don't really understand, especially considering the Raiders have been bad against the run all season long. They've gotten really gashed at times. Why did they only run the football 19 times? Because the score was at a point where you could actually still justify running the ball. Excuse me. Makes it, it's a good point. It doesn't make a lot of sense. There's, and I thought maybe this was a game, considering what we've seen from Mac Jones the last two weeks. Considering that all week we heard that Mac Jones was on a short leash, uh, I had this. I had the opinion is I can see Bill just to prove a point because this is what he does. Um, you, you know, you can point to several occasions in the past where he's done this, where 
he'd just come out and just run the football, not even kind of like that Buffalo game a few years ago where the weather maybe dictated that. But just to prove a point, just start running the ball, running the ball, running the ball, and 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 take the you know don't let uh, Mac Jones you know even pass the ball uh, unless you you know unless you had to on third down in short situations or long situations. But um, and they didn't, so they they. You know, they, they did they, I, I don't know why they didn't, because they really, they've shown the, the only life of signs of life in this offense is really been when they run between the tackles. And when they, when they want to decide to run between the tackles, they usually have success. And in the past, Bill has made point if he's not liking what he's seeing, he will really, really just to show everyone, you know, we're, we're, this is what we need to do. He he will run the football, and he didn't do that. That is a little bit surprising to me, Brian. Yeah, and the other thing I thought was a bit surprising, now maybe the answer to this is just the offensive line, but Mack in that game, just 16.7% of his dropbacks came via play action, which was tied for 21st that week. On the season, it's at 16.9, 29th of 35. So a lot of times the game script gets away from you, so you can't do that. But when you look at the fact that Maybe part of it is Vidarian Lowe after Sunday has given up 27 pressures, second most of any tackle. Antonio Maffi is now tied for second among guards with 20. We saw yeah. Crosby at the end of the game go right by Vidarian Lowe. Like there was no challenge there whatsoever. Gasicki gives him no challenge either, right? So maybe you just couldn't use a play action pass game. But even if you look at this, you could tell clearly entering the game, they just, even against a Raiders team that has basically one guy you're worried about, Max Crosby, like they, they don't have a lot of great pass rushers. It's just one guy is really good, right? And usually in the past, like think about to the teams in the past, Brady would just eliminate J.J. Watt from the game. Like J.J. Watt yeah. never played well against the Patriots. But if you look at this game, Mac 2.23 seconds via next gen is time to throw. Quickest in the NFL. 2.3 completed air yards per his completions. That was the fewest in the NFL. So this like new version of the dink and dunk is basically like snap it and just get the ball out or else you're going to get buried. So I feel like because of the personnel, especially with the issues they've had in the offensive line with Fidarian Lowe, with another, with a rookie and Antonio Maffi, Cole Strange can't even play. And he has really not been good since the Patriots drafted him, a guard they drafted in the first round. I really feel like, and I don't think Bill O'Brien has been impressive. Let me be clear about that. But I don't think you can do a lot of stuff offensively because of how bad this offensive line is. The offensive line um, is the is I said it forever. It's going to be their undoing. It is the number one problem with this football team is the offensive line. It, it is it is handicapping this team. You cannot you, you if your whole offense is about timing and rhythm and a pocket quarterback and. And everybody kind of executing, you know, the 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 play the way you know it's supposed to. And then, then, then you're going to have problems like this if you have a bad offensive line. The offensive line is, and and and, and I say I say this. I feel like you know people are probably tired of hearing this, but so many of the problems that you're having now could have been corrected five months ago. It goes back, you know, it's it goes back to. May, March and April and May and, and and not addressing it then. You had problems with the offensive line back in March and you still have offensive line problems here in October and they never addressed them. And the offensive line, it, it's historically, it's, the, it's my absolute favorite unit and it's the most important unit. I've always said this about the offensive line. It sets the tone for the team um, and it, it, it just, it, if you don't have a good offensive line, your team is in troubles, particularly if you have a marginal quarterback. 
Um, and, and so you can't do anything. And so it's so predictable what they're going to do because the other teams know that they have limitations. And so it's all this horizontal passing, ball out quick. So defenses pack the box, get up there and jam these guys. And so it's 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 got to be suffocating for this offense to know that they can't ever stretch the field and that basically they're going to be fighting in a phone booth. And that's just not the way you run an offense in today's NFL. Well, and the aggravating part to me is defensively, we've seen on multiple occasions, Bill has gone out and he's paid for certainty, right? Where, okay, even if it's a cheaper deal, you get Darrell Revis. Matthew Judon, you thought, okay, if you bring him over here, you can enhance his pass rushing even more. And to the Patriots' credit, they were able to do that. So we've seen that throughout the history of the organization. They've gone out and they've gotten proven defensive players. Offensively, what I'm wondering is, I don't know how you come into the season and think Riley Reef, who played on two of the worst offensive lines the past couple of years, is going to be good at right tackle. Then, nonetheless, you move them into the interior to play guard. Like, you knew there were question marks on this offensive line entering the season, and then you came into the season as well without a number one option in terms of your receiving game, right? When DeAndre Hopkins, that situation was sitting out there for you. And even if it's not DeAndre Hopkins, you needed to address that because you haven't found a legitimate number one weapon since Rob Gronkowski originally retired in 2018. I love Edelman, but he was he had a good 19, but then he was basically, he was banged up, right, in 2020 with Cam Newton. So you still haven't figured that part of it out. So I'm wondering if it's, because they are trying, like they're putting resources. Now, I thought they got way too cheap on the offensive line, but they're trying with other parts of the offense. I wonder, is it is it just a blind spot that Bill has because of how he was able to build the team with Tom, where Tom fixed so many different things for them, where he thinks, okay, yeah, this on paper, this line may not look great, but we'll get it to work. Yeah, we don't have the biggest name receivers out there, but we'll get it to work. Like, did did he almost underrate almost Gronk, right? To what Gronk meant to the organization. You can't oh, just yeah. replace Gronk, right? With the Dalton Keens and the Devin Asiasis of the world. Then it's Hunter Henry and then it's, John o. Smith, who John o. Smith's actually playing better now that he's in Atlanta. But you think there is sort of a blind spot in how Bill builds the team and almost, I don't want to say underrating what Tom did, because obviously it's not underrating what Tom did, but almost like they don't realize how much Tom did. Oh, definitely. I mean, that's, that's, uh, are you kidding me? That's, that's, that's how Bill thinks, you know, Bill thinks that it's, it's, it's more about him mm. um, as the players. He's always thought that, you know, um, and so his, his words might say one thing, uh, but his actions have always told me that it, it he really feels like it's about the coaching and not and not the players. And that's I'm and I said it from the very beginning. I'm sorry. I'll say it again. <laughs> when he let Tom go and he did not want Tom, uh, you know, he did not want him. He, he gave him a really bad offer, knowing that Tom would be offended and want to get out of here. And that's exactly how it went down. Um, the ecosystem changed. The ecosystem. And what made that organization uh, so great for so many years, um, it went poof right out the door when Tom left. Because Bill doesn't have anyone on this team to point to everyone else and say, this is Tom Brady was the best player, not only on the team, but in the NFL. And he takes the kills I give him, he takes hard coaching. Um, he's treated just like everyone else. And by having that, the best player in the NFL, taking crappy deals, taking hard coaching, dealing with uh, the Bill Belichick behind the scenes that a lot of people don't know, which is very, very difficult, it made 
everyone else fall in line because you know what guys want to win and guys will take crappy deals i took a, a couple a deal a crappy deal because i wanted to win and if i didn't maybe i would have gone somewhere else well i wouldn't have won two more super bowls if i did that so guys sacrificed to win um because they knew they could win when they had tom brady take tom brady out who's who's bill pointing to as the you know, as as the guy, is it David Andrews? David Andrews is taking crappy deals from these guys. But with all due respect to David Andrews, he's the center. That's not the most impactful position. He doesn't have a guy like Tom anymore to point to and say, the best player on our team, this guy, he does it. Everything I say, he takes the crappy deals. He gets coached hard. And so, um, you know, who are you to, to, to you know, to, 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 to say otherwise? And so, he, that's the ecosystem is totally different now, Brian. And I said that from immediately from the start when Tom left, the bill is going to have to get guys to buy in more than he ever had to before, because he didn't have to get guys to buy in when Tom was here because of, for those, all those reasons. Now he does. And you see what the results are. It's a great point because you think about guys throughout the history of the organization too, even a guy like Danny Amendola, who obviously was not the biggest fan of Bill Belichick, but he took a below market deal because he wanted to continue to win and he wanted to continue to play with Tom Brady. And even externally, it can be attractive, right? I think about Chris Long, who you knew from a system perspective, from a scheme perspective, he didn't perfectly fit into the defense. He was going to be sort of a bit player, but he came here because he knew he had an opportunity to win a Super Bowl, even if he was going to have a reduced role because... From an individual perspective, he had already achieved so much. So now when you think back to it, they had no plan, right? When it's Jared Sidham and Hoyer and then Cam becomes available and then Mac kind of falls into their lap at 15, which obviously we're finding out now that is not going to work long term for the organization either. So it's 26 and 30 since Tom left. And I do wonder this because Robert Kraft basically, even though he tried to blame Tom when Tom originally left. Remember, he called up Stephen A. Smith during his break during first take and said if Tom wanted to be here, he would have been. Like, that was a bizarre thing. Like, Stephen A. Smith, he's getting calls during first take. So he calls up Stephen A. Smith. And I feel like it's interesting to me because what he obviously chose, he chose the longevity of Bill over longevity of Tom because what he easily could have done, he could have said, Bill, you give him the Drew Brees deal or you're gone. And he's referred to Tom as a son before. He could have easily chose Tom over Bill when that was going down, when it felt like, and I know they're great now, but the relationship obviously had soured to the point. They even hurt themselves in negotiations by taking out the clause that they couldn't franchise him anymore. And maybe Brady just would have been even more pissed off if that was the case. But my question is, how much does Kraft deserve blame for where the organization is at right now? For basically backing Bill. I mean, this goes back to last year's owners meetings where he talked about Patricia saying essentially Bill's done unconventional things like he trusted him to that point. He allowed this map. He wasn't like, ah, I, I don't know about this, Bill. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. He's he's definitely the, the, the heat's been turned up on on Robert Kraft as well. And so he's he's definitely responsible for for a lot of this, too, Brian. I mean, that's you know, if that's what you, the guy that you're going to hit your wagon to. Um, and you see what the results were. I mean, because and he and you and, he, and the point you bring up about about Tom is, you know, Tom wanted to be here, but he just wanted to be paid fair. It's like paid fairly. The Patriots wanted Tom, but at on their terms, and that's the that's that's where the disconnect is, right? And so uh, Robert Kraft, he's he's intervened. He's kept Tom here maybe longer than 
than what Bill wanted, uh, you know, by being a buffer, hey, you know, and working both sides, going to Tom saying, hey, man, just work with us here. We're going to, you know, we, we, we nearly need you. So he's always been kind of this, the conduit between Bill and Tom and kept things smoothly. And then he just, at the end, he just said, all right, well, I, I can't do it anymore. And so he, he sided with Bill. And it, clearly that was obviously uh, the wrong decision because it, it's you saw what Tom did when he went down to Tampa Bay and you're seeing what Bill's doing now. And so it, it's, and it, 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 he's, Robert Kraft is very sensitive about how people talk clearly the, the Stephen A, uh, you know, interview when he jumped in on that, um, he hears what everyone says, and so it's it's a very sensitive topic for him. But at the end of the day, yes, he, Robert Kraft bears some responsibility in this whole thing as well, no question about it. Well, and I think too, part of it is in nineteen, Brady played behind a terrible offensive line, right? Where and look, they couldn't predict that Marshall Newhouse was going to be out for the season. They had injuries across the line, but I mean, excuse me, David Andrews is hurt for the season. So then, at left tackle, actually, you're playing Marshall Newhouse, who's no disrespect to Marshall Newhouse and the Newhouse family. He's one of the worst tackles you'll ever see. I mean, he may make Vidarian Low look good at this point. Maybe maybe that's too hyperbolic, but I mean, he was bad. So it was a bad offensive line in terms of that season, and then. You also, because you had Antonio Brown for just the one game, you didn't have any weapons. Nikhil Harry was there. Remember, they didn't draft A.J. Brown. Maybe if A.J. Brown, who looks like T.O., he's like baby T.O., you're like, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe I do want to stay. But Gronk had already left. So in other years, like say this happened in hypothetically 2015 or 2016, Brady would have looked at it and been like, yeah, even though I don't want to put up with Bill and I'm underpaid, I still get the best chance to win. So yeah. Bill's poor roster building at that point even gave Tom sort of the idea like, OK, I'm going to pay for less or I'm going I'm to play for less and the team's not going to be that yeah. good. Like I'm going to be dealing with the same offense I was last year. It made the decision even easier for Tom. And then from yeah. Tom's perspective on this, and I know he doesn't think this way, but I I did not think somebody's legacy could be enhanced this much since he left. First of all, he goes there immediately, wins the Super Bowl, right? Wins the Super Bowl. The only criticism you could have possibly had of Tom was, hey, let's see what he does without Bill. Okay, year one, he wins the Super Bowl with a coach in Bruce Arians, who is like his motto is win or lose, we boost. He wins a Super Bowl with that guy in year one. The second year, he could have easily won the MVP over Aaron Rodgers. If you look at all the numbers, Tom led the league in passing. He could have easily been the MVP. And now, with you look at the dysfunction of this organization to the point where they're one of the worst teams in the NFL since he's left. Belichick's legacy, I think, has, I don't want to, obviously, he's the greatest coach of all time, blah, 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 all that. We get it. But now, like, this whole idea of, hey, what is he without Tom? Well, he had one playoff appearance in Cleveland. And since Tom left, he's had one playoff appearance. And it looks like it's getting even worse than it was in Cleveland. I, I can't believe that it's gone this far in the opposite directions where, Tom, and remember, Tom also beat Mahomes in the playoffs twice. You beat him in the Super Bowl, and he beat him back in 18. So the guy that's chasing him to be the best quarterback of all time, he's always going to have two wins over Mahomes in the postseason. And the coach they left behind, his team is a dumpster fire. The only team that's been outscored by more points is the New York Giants. It's, I, I, Brian, I said that when, when I, it was, I, I mean, I, I'll be honest, I was shocked when Bill let Tom go. Shocked. Because I thought... He was smarter than that. But it, it goes to show you the hubris and the arrogance and the self-importance Bill Belichick feels regarding himself that he thought <laughs> letting Tom Brady – that he, he, he wanted Tom Brady out. 
he wanted he thought he would be better off with Tom Brady not on his team. Even and, like five years prior to that, when he had Jimmy, he he thought that was a better idea. Right. It's it, and he still won another Super Bowl with Tom. It's it is amazing when he let Tom walk. I just said, wow, Bill is exposing himself to things that I would talk about that were very unpopular with fans. The one I would bring up a lot of the issues that Bill we're seeing clearly now. I was talking about when Tom about Bill when Tom was still here, and nobody wanted to hear it because you're winning, and I'm the disgruntled you know former player. And it's like when Tom left, I just said, "Wow, Bill is now." People are going to see a lot of what I've been saying because he exposed himself to now all these next level analysis. And let's let's dig a little bit deeper. What really what was this whole thing about? Was it really about the system and the program? in the Patriot way and the way Bill does it is so unique and different that no one else can do it. Or was it more about having the best player ever and really great players at the end of the day? Because, you know, Tom wasn't Tom in those early runs. We had great defenses. We had great, we had Hall of Fame players on that team. Um, and it was really more about the players than it was about Bill. Bill was hugely, you know, a big part of it. But I think we know now we're, you know, we're the, you know, the kind of the, uh, I, I think we're, you know, who gets most of the credit is really it was the players. And when he let Tom go, I just said all the methodologies, all his, all his, uh, you know, all his kind of, uh, you know, ideologies, whatever, are going to be exposed. And he's going to leave himself very vulnerable. And I, I am shocked that he did it because uh, clearly you talk about legacy. It has changed in the last four years. Bill Belichick's legacy was one thing four years ago. It is something different now, now that Tom Brady's walked out the door. Well, and I, I remember, too, when Tom left, I'm thinking to myself, like, I want to cheer for the laundry. The Patriots are still going to be good. They're going to be okay. Tom wasn't that great in 19. But what we would find out the prior season, it's like, well, the roster wasn't good. That's why Tom wasn't good at 19. Tom's numbers were down across the board if you go from 18 to 19. Well, why did that happen? Oh, well, because he wasn't playing with good receivers and he wasn't playing with a good offensive line. That's the real issue. It wasn't Tom's age. It had nothing to do with right. Tom. But that's a really interesting point you bring up about the first dynasty because I'm thinking off about this off the top of my head. Okay, so he drafted Matt Light. He drafted Richard Seymour. He brought in Rodney for 03 and 04. You were here. Teddy Bruschi was here. Ty Law was here. Willie McGinnis was here. Now, Will Ford came in for... 04, Troy Brown was here. He did draft Deion Branch. But a lot of those guys had already been with the organization. I guess he brought in Corey Dillon for the stretch run there, too. So he did have some nice free agent signings, if you will. Vrabel. But a, yeah. yeah, Vrabel. Vra yes, Vrabel. That's a good point. Vrabel is a great move. But a lot of sort of the pillars, like you guys went to the Super Bowl in 96. So a lot of those guys were still on the team. Okay. So, you know, and there was a... Uh, <laughs> You bring up the, the 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 you know the '96 team. There were pillars, a lot of pillars. There was a solid foundation uh, of guys that uh, you know were on already on on this team when Bill took over in 2000. And when we won that Super Bowl in 2001, Bill was dismissive about that team. Uh, in in an earlier uh, interview this this off season, when he talked oh, yeah. about, you know, he basically said, "Yeah, the '01 team, you know, you know, when I inherited, there were." There are a couple pillars from this, from that 96 team, a couple, you know, are you kidding me? There's, <laughs> there's, there's about seven or eight 
Um, <laughs> and, and we had a good team when he took over in 2000. We had a good foundation of guys um, when he took over in, in 2000. And so it was, um, you know, for him to be dismissive of that, that 0-1 team that won, won that Super Bowl against the Rams was a little bit surprising to me. But it goes to show you that he thinks he wants to take more credit for it. He thinks it's him and his methodology, not the players, um, to just be dismissive of the talent that he acquired. He acquired a lot of talent um, when he became the um, the coach here that was already here. And so to me, uh, that just shows you how Bill thinks. He thinks it's more about him than the players. When you dismiss the uh, the talent of players that were already here when he got here, to make it sound like, you know, they they the cover was bare. No, it wasn't. We had really good players on that on that team that when he took over in 2000 that were on those nine that 96 uh Super Bowl team that lost ultimately, but that was there was that was a good team. But more than he realizes. Yeah, was well that that is fascinating because if you think obviously the second dynasty, Brady deserves the most credit, right? Yeah. You, they had good defenses, but they weren't like the best defenses in the NFL. Now, occasionally they'd be top three in the NFL. But when you get to these big games, Brady's coming back from 28 to three. Brady's and I know Malcolm Butler had the huge interception, which in like congratulations, like unbelievable play by Malcolm Butler. We'll always remember that. I remember the tackle from Hightower, the play before where he somehow stops Marshawn Lynch. Incredible play. But Brady also went nuts on the defense that just destroyed Peyton Manning the second year Brady went off in the second half of that game and so that second dynasty everybody thinks about it that it's Brady and then the 0-1 team that team there was a lot of guys that carried over so I wonder if he said that because 0-3 and 0-4 there was more of his fingerprints there right Dion Branch Rodney Harrison more of his guys were with the team even going like I mentioned Will Fork was part of the 0-4 team so more of his guys were in the organization at that point compared to 2001, where it's still a lot of carryover from the Parcells time. Yeah, that's it. You nailed it. That's it. So it's it's about his guys, and it's about his decisions and the guys that he brings in. Um, that's that's Bill's always, always, I always say this about Bill. He's an engineer. He's a, he's a coach, but he's really an engineer. He's trying to always engineer narratives, engineer outcomes the way he wants. He, he's trying to engineer how you think how you perceive the team. And so he's trying to engineer a narrative that, you know, that there was no talent here. And that when I came here, you know, I brought in all these guys and I, I formed the team into, to my image. Um, and that's the reason we won those, those, uh, th those Super Bowls. It's like, Bill, you, 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 your thinking was, it was on another level, no question, but don't act like the cupboard was bare. Like you had really good players. And you should know because you were a defensive backs coach on that <laughs> Super Bowl team back in 1996. You know how many good players we had on defense that you uh, that were still here when you came back in 2000. And did I give them credit? It's just that's typical Bill, uh, just the way he is. And so he 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 wants to make everyone think that he's, you know, he has this plan, and then when he gets there, it's a four year plan, and he's, you know, it, it, please. Give me a break with that stuff. It, it's uh, it's so full of shit sometimes. It just makes my head spin. Well, now when I look at this, I think about it because I feel like it's almost uh, like a gambler. He's going to want to keep chasing it, right? Like now you've gotten to the point where it's gotten as bad as it possibly can. We thought 2022 was going to be the nadir of the Belichick era. 
2023 somehow got worse. And even me, like, I thought the Patriots would be decent. And I may have said on the pod, hey, maybe they'll compete for the playoffs. Clearly, I was wrong about that. I totally underestimated how bad this team was actually going to be. But I feel like Bill's going to want to keep coaching. So I do wonder, like, with the whole Robert Kraft aspect to this, I don't believe that he's going to be able to go to Bill and say, hey, Bill, will you retire? I don't believe Bill's going to do it at this particular point in time. I think Bill will want to continue to coach. So now, whether or not they can come to some, like, mutual thing where Bill says he's done with the Patriots— I do think Bill's going to want to try to get another job if Robert Kraft wants to move on. And I'm interested, Brandon Staley, his team's losing games. The Chargers, that's the team I brought up. The Commanders have new ownership. Is that a team that's going to be saying, hey, if we hire a Bill Belichick big ticket item? And the question now will be, if, if you're one of these other franchises, I mean, you can't let Bill be the GM. I don't know how anybody could let Bill be the GM at that point in time. But so do you, how do you think it ends? Do you think that Robert's going to have to fire him? I do. I, and I and I, I just I, I I have a different opinion than most on this. I just I don't think there's going to be this this big market. You know, if mm. there's one team, I guess if there's one team that's done, and and there's so many dumb NFL owners. Oh my gosh, I mean they <laughs> have, there's so many freaking dumb owners. They have no idea what they're doing. Um, I, I you know is is a 72 year old coach who looks like you know he's had one foot into retirement. Chill Bill, baby. I mean, dude, we he's been chill Bill for the last five years. Does he look like a guy that's gonna that's energized, that wants to start over, that wants to go somewhere and be invigorated, and he's gonna bring all this energy to your program? I don't get I don't see it. I'm sorry, Chargers, Washington, all these other names. I can't imagine. And so Bill is trying to set up a, a situation here. Where he's got his sons here, he's got his friends here, he's got his, his close confidants here. He doesn't. You think he wants to just pick up all of these people's lives and move them somewhere else? Because he's trying to basically set it up so that when he leaves here, eventually, when he wants to do it on his terms, and when he retires or here, that his son or whoever is in place to take it over. And so I just can't imagine Bill's like thinking like I want to do that somewhere else at the age of 72. Was there a team out there that would do it that is dumb enough to do it? Probably. But I don't think there's going to be this heavy market of several teams that are out there trying to just get Bill Belichick at 72 years old with the history, the recent history he's had as his coaching and think that it's going to be a good idea. And I don't I can't imagine Bill saying pay me less take power away from me just to go somewhere and then I'll move somewhere else and I'll be okay with that doesn't seem like a very uh attractive uh situation for me if I'm Bill if I'm Bill Belichick it's crazy man because obviously I've come to the conclusion like a lot of other people it's they're gonna have to move on it's just it's gone in the wrong direction now for four years they had the blip in 2021 where they made the playoffs if you go through that season they got really lucky when you look at some of the games, the win game. But even if you go to specific games, Nick Chubb didn't play for the Browns. Christian McCaffrey didn't play for the Panthers. A lot of those games, they got lucky. And unfortunately for me, as somebody that grew up watching your teams win Super Bowls, I feel this is bad. Like Belichick's losing all these games. And it's just, when I think about it from an athlete's perspective, I never saw most of the athletes from this generation stink, right? David Ortiz, his 40-year-old season was unbelievable. Tom Brady was still doing his thing at the end of his career with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I think about 
Bergeron. I mean, Bergeron won the most face-offs in the NHL last season. He had the best five-on-five numbers of any forward, right? Even Rodney. Rodney retired after 07. The team went undefeated, who was one of my favorite players growing up watching Rodney Harrison play. And Bill's kind of in this position where we're actually seeing it. We're actually seeing Bill be a bad GM, and his team is, they're one in five. So the coaching has been poor. He's made bad decisions. It's, it's, it's in some sense, from my perspective, sad to watch. So, Ted, before I w- let you go, I want to ask you about this just in terms of the deadline. Kendrick Bourne, I think, would have some value. I mentioned a team like the Chiefs, of course, who they desperately need receivers. They're trying to win another Super Bowl. But I think Kendrick Bourne's going to have a market considering the contract is reasonable. You're going to have to pay him nothing because he's in the final year of his deal. So you're just taking on what, like, seven weeks of paying the guy, which is barely anything to begin with. Josh Uche, if they don't want to sign him, that's a guy that I would, if they don't want to, I mean, I think he's a good young player. Duggar never got an extension with the team. Trent Brown, now obviously the offensive line is a mess to begin with, and (laughs) Trent Brown is pretty good, but that's somebody that could recoup value because from my angle on this, I think you got to tear it down to the studs, draft a quarterback in the top five. I assume the Patriots are going to have a top five pick in the draft. So I would be sort of having a fire sale because I I don't really feel like there's a ton of teams like even Arizona, right, who they are tanking, but they're much better than the Patriots in terms of their watchability, if you will. They don't have a lot of enticing pieces on that team. The Bears, they don't have a lot of enticing pieces on the team. Carolina, not really either, unless somebody like really likes Adam Thielen. I don't know. So I do think that the Patriots, they could actually recoup some draft value. But I just wonder, do you think Bill will do that? Do, do you think Bill should be the one making that decision, though, Brian? No, I don't. But I, if he's going to be gone, do you want Bill Belichick making trades at the trade deadline if the inevitable is that he's let go at the end of the season? That's I would I wouldn't want him making that decision. So that's it's an interesting kind of time because what if what if the Patriots hierarchy? What if the Kraft family wants you know wants them to be trade you know make trades and to get draft equity back? Uh, at the trade deadline that's, uh, what, in two weeks, right, October t- uh, 31st, um, yep. then you're basically, if you if you if Bill, if you go to Bill and you tell him that, you're basically saying, we're going to fire you at the end of the year. We're going to take away your, your responsibility as far as making trades. We want to do that. We don't trust you. Um, is Bill going to be okay with that? Um, or do you not have that conversation at all and let him do what he's going to do? I would be weary of Bill making any trades at the trade deadline. And I will say this. I don't think they're going to make any trades at the trade deadline, not oh. because they think it's the best thing for the team, but it's really about optics at this point. And I just can't imagine them selling guys and telling the world that we've given up on the season. It just is so anti-Patriot. Like for them to wave the white flag and say, we've given up on the season, they're more about optics, and they will do things that, from an optical standpoint, makes them look better than to maybe do what's right for the team. And that's this is, I think, fits that category where they don't want to show that the heat's getting to them, especially Bill Belichick. He doesn't ever want to be reactionary to what people are saying. He never wants you to think, Brian, that you're what you're saying is getting to him and that he needs to do what you think he needs to do. He is going to play it in a way that he's like, I'm not, I don't feel the heat. I don't know what you're talking about. I, I, what do you mean? And so I'm going to, he's going to make decisions to where it looks like he's not panicked and that he's, uh, he's got everything under control. And so I don't see them being the wheeling and dealing at the trade deadline because that's, 
would signal to everybody that the end is coming to, you know, that the end is, is closer than what, what people think. And Ted, they get Buffalo this week and then they play Miami. I mean, they're yeah. going to be one and six by the time the deadline rolls around. They're staring one and seven. I would be yep. shocked if they're not one and seven because Josh Allen, we all know. I mean, he owns the Patriots too. It's unbelievable. Yep. I wonder if some of these teams try to take advantage of them at the deadline. Like if I go back to the Devontae Parker thing, I'm thinking to myself, if I was the Dolphins, I'm, I'm getting this call from whoever it was, Matt Groh, whoever, Bill. Hey, uh, we'll give you a third for Devontae. And probably thought, wait, is this a prank? Hang that up. There's no, there's no, wait, the guy that's not going to play for us, they're offering us a third. Yeah. Teams may try to take advantage of the Patriots at the trading deadline. I'd be curious how many teams are calling the Patriots right now. Like, because it's interesting. I love all these, you know, anonymous quotes from executives around the league and scouts around the league. Everyone, I mean, I haven't heard any anonymous source say the Patriots are doing a good job and it, uh, they'll get this thing turned around. Uh, there is blood in the water and people are circling. And I, I just wonder when it comes to, uh, you know, the trade deadline, if other teams aren't seeing, you know, are thinking like, hey, we can maybe get some of these players at an, at an opportune time. We'll, we'll see. we got two weeks. We'll see how it goes. We shall see. All right, that is three-time Super Bowl champ Ted Johnson. You see him on NBC Sports Boston. You hear him on 98.5 The Sports Hub. Ted, appreciate the time as always, man. And the good news is this. The Bruins are 2-0. and They play again on Thursday night, and the Celtics season starts a week from Wednesday. So we're in man, good shape. I love it. Uh, let's go, C's. I love the Drew Holiday pickup. I'm so pumped for this season. I love, I, you know, I love the Van Gundy coming in here. I, I love everything about the Celtics right now. The ownership going all in. I can't wait for the – I love – I'm curious what the Bruins – how they look. Now that Bergeron's gone, got some new young guys, so I'm fascinated about that. But the season in particular should be a, a fun season for us, bud. Yeah, I cannot wait for the Celts. It's going to be awesome. It, yep. Their first preseason game, and maybe this is part of a ripple effect. I mentioned this on I, the pod a couple weeks ago. Ted, thanks so much, man. That was a ton of fun. You bet, Brian. Anytime, bud. All right, you uh, you take care, okay? All right, Ted. Have a good one, right. man. See you, pal. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Ted Johnson. Always enjoy chatting with Ted, man. It's crazy where this Patriots organization is at right now. And we're only six games in. We bring in producer extraordinaire Jamie McClellan. Jamie, we're only six games in, man. We got a lot more time to watch this team. It's crazy. It's only October. I have no idea. I mean, people have mentioned this game on Christmas Eve, you know, Broncos, Patriots. And oh, my gosh, we'll see what things are like at that stage. There's going to be some real tanking. Oh, how about this? What yeah. if by that time, which I think will happen by that time, probably earlier than that, probably like the next couple of weeks, if Russell Wilson's benched, Bill could lose to another one of his former backups. He lost to Hoyer. <laughs> Who is that, Jared? Yeah, Jared Stidham. <laughs> Stidham could beat the Patriots. And oh, I'd be cheering for Stidham in that particular situation because I want the Patriots to get a good draft pick at this point. I'm embracing the suck. That's what we have to do. We for have sure. good teams in town. We have the Celtics, who are the favorites to win the NBA championship. And the Bruins have played pretty well in their first yeah. two games. So at least they're going to be an entertaining product, right? Mm -hmm. So embrace the suck with the Patriots. You get the C's, okay? Ready for that. By the way, I just wanted to mention this little nugget here before we get to some emails, Jamie. Mm -hmm. Jacoby Myers is averaging 67 receiving yards per game, career high. Jonu Smith is averaging 47 receiving yards, career high. Devontae Parker, 27.2, career low. Mentioned that with Ted. Juju, 17.2, career low. So the two guys that left the Patriots are averaging career highs in receiving yards, and the guys here are averaging career lows in receiving yards. 
pretty much how it's gone for the Patriots this season. Yeah, I'd say so. I think something I think about in, in the past, like people always talk about how the Patriots are bad at identifying receivers and stuff talent wise. But say I feel like it's also like the the whatever the scheme is that the offense runs. You know, like John Smith, yeah. I'm like, there's no way this guy is just bad at football. He's fast, he's athletic, and it's like they just he was good before he was on the Patriots, he was good after. So what does that tell you, right? Yeah. And it's just sad watching the end of this. And I know I alluded Very to this sad. a bit with Ted. It's obviously not as sad for Ted because <laughs> Ted, <laughs> yeah. Ted's, been, Ted's been proven right about this. But for me, it's yeah. kind of sad seeing Belichick in this Definitely. position where his team is, he, he can do nothing about it. He's changing up the schedules, like just a complete mess right now. All right, let's get to a couple of emails. By the way, if you want to leave us a voicemail, 617-396-7172 is that number. Of course, the email address off the pike at gmail.com. All right, what do we got, Jamie? Um, this first one is from Jacob in Chicago, and he actually he wrote this as a reply to an email he sent back in June complaining about the Devontae Parker extension. But he wrote, aren't you so glad we extended him? The guy has 12 catches in five games for 129 yards, and he finally has a chance to make an impact on Sunday. Even though he never gets any separation, he drops what was one of Mac's best passes of the season. What a joke. And then he moves on to say, my question, though, is – do you think Kraft could bring in a general manager or someone other than Bill to be the GM of the team? I still believe in Bill as a coach with his defensive prowess and game planning ability. However, it's clear we need someone else who can help hire the right coordinators and assistants on the coaching side and make better decisions in terms of contract negotiations and scouting talent overall. Bill's player personnel decisions have been horrible for a few, near, a few years now, and clearly that needs to change. Do you think Bill would accept a new GM that would demote him from his job in the front office and diminish his role across the organization, or do you think he'd just walk away for accepting a reduced role? He'd walk away. No way. Bill with his ego. I don't know how he'd give up the organizational power of being in charge of everything. Remember Bill Parcells said, why don't you let them shop for the groceries? Right? Like, so I, I can't see Bill ever giving up that power, even though I think it's incredibly difficult to do place a three leg same game. pro. Jimmy Johnson actually said it on the Fox pregame show this week is that it's really difficult to do. He said, of course, he did it with the Cowboys, but he said, I wouldn't be able to do it now at this point where the league's at. But there's no chance Bill would do that. He would he would move on. If Kraft's like, hey, we're bringing in a GM, you can still coach. No chance he he stays here. No chance. I think you're right. I I did put it up. Just I was thinking about this question. I put it up from zero percent to somewhere slightly higher than zero percent just because I mean, he might be truly delusional, but if he's not like watching this season, you kind of think he he's a little humbled by it. And it's like it's like okay, I built this terrible team around me, and I think another thing is no one else is going to give him a GM job right across the league. And I feel like he he's kind of like this like you know like NFL history guy. I feel like he wants to stay here. Do you think any shot like does he really no. want to? Well. Look, these other teams could get desperate. The teams that I mentioned, the Chargers and Washington's one that Bill brought up originally, like those two teams, they could get desperate and just go for the allure of Bill Belichick. Mm -hmm. Now, I think it would probably be a mistake by those teams, but I could certainly see those teams getting desperate enough to give him the personnel power. But in terms of him actually accepting that role here, Bill will never have a football boss. Like he's got Robert Kraft is technically his boss is the owner of the football team, but Robert lets him do everything with his football (laughs) team. I mentioned this with Ted. He accepted the Patricia thing, the owner. He, he thought this could, when everybody else in the world thought this is the dumbest idea, he actually is like, oh, you know what? He's done unconventional things before. I don't want to meddle. 
I'll let him do that. So Bill yeah. doesn't really have a football boss. I cannot imagine that he would ever accept yeah. having a football boss. I just can't see it. So no, I, I don't see any way that Bill says, hey, somebody else can take over as the GM and I'll just coach the team. No chance. No chance to see that happening. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, okay, this next email is from Tony in Virginia. Tony writes, so what are we rooting for this season? There's no path to the playoffs. I don't really see any young guys who I think are going to make the leap. So there's not a lot of player development storylines either. I know in my head that bottoming out makes the most sense this year. And so the team can reload either with or without Bill next year. But my heart still sunk when Parker dropped the ball late in the fourth quarter. I think I might put myself in a medically induced coma this season and just not acknowledge they exist until April 2024. I'll root for my fantasy team, but watching this team, knowing it makes sense to lose, just is too damn weird. Love the show and go Celtics. Yeah. It is weird. I understand that because I found myself in that game, even though I knew what I wanted to happen was the Patriots, the end result I wanted them to lose. But as I mentioned with James White on Sunday, I found myself in that moment pissed off at Devontae Parker that he didn't make the catch, right? Even though ultimately I wanted the Patriots to lose, and that, of course, aided in them losing the football game. But it is difficult to cheer against the team when you're actually watching it, right? Because you've been too invested. So I wanted to see them win, but the result that I want is for them to lose out. Now, they have some challenges here because Justin Fields is now banged up. He's dealing with an injury. So if he can't play... That hurts the Patriots in terms of another team that's contending for the number one pick, right. and they have Carolina's pick anyway. What the Patriots really need, I don't know if I mentioned this before, is more Andy Dalton for Carolina. They need Andy Dalton to play. Arizona's kind of done this perfectly. Like, the Patriots didn't plan to be bad. Arizona planned to be bad, and they're actually executing the plan as well as you possibly can. They won the, what, the one game? So they're one in five, but at least they're in these games. At least they're competitive remember the Giants had to erase like a 28 to nothing deficit to beat them and they did beat the Cowboys so they've at least been competitive the Giants I don't know how much more competitive they can be down the stretch of the season now the good news for them is Washington's a weird football team too maybe they can pick up a win against Washington and I know Washington just beat Atlanta but Atlanta outplayed them it's just Desmond Ritter is an absolutely atrocious quarterback and he turned the ball (laughs) over I just don't when I look at this Patriots schedule I don't see a lot of wins so I think they should I would be stunned if they're outside of the top five. I believe they're going to get a top five pick. The question is going to be how high can you get up? Can you get to number one, which I don't think they can get up to number one. It's not looking likely. I mean, is Carolina going to lose? The thing about Carolina, too, is maybe at the end of the season, some of these other teams in their division that aren't going to make the playoffs, maybe they step off the gas a little bit, and that sort of opens up an opportunity for them to win a game. The game they really needed to win was Minnesota. I mean, that, luckily for me, I had Minnesota in my survivor pool. So hmm. I just been, I honestly have just been picking against Carolina. I did it again. I picked Miami this week. I'm still rolling in my survivor pool. You you know, my, my fantasy team sucks, but my survivor pool, I'm still in it. A lot of people lost in that Dallas game. People got eliminated when Dallas lost to Arizona. Arizona, wow. their one win. That was the trend at the beginning of the season. A lot of people were picking against Arizona, but then after that, People got a little hesitant when it came to that, but I'm still in my survivor pool. I don't know how I got to my survivor pool from the, oh, the number one pick part of it, right? Yeah. So Carolina is the tricky one because they don't have the pick. Chicago has their pick. So I think they're not gonna, they'll be fine then. They're going to win a couple of games. Like someone else will take that in if they have no incentive to lose, right? I mean, I know they do just suck, but like you said, maybe a couple of divisional games at the end of the year. But I think I was thinking about the pick. Um, 
like you, I think like everyone, it's like it's hard to root against your team. Like when the Raiders are converting third downs, you just get kind of mad. And I was thinking like it's probably like I'm not sure you can really tank, especially as like players. Like obviously you can no, the players cut your can. team, you know, and make them the least talented team on the planet so they lose. But it must be so hard to go out on a football field and like, you know, not play to win the game. Right. Right. You have to it. The organization has to yeah. do it by the team. Arizona probably thought they were doing a really good job of it by having Josh Dobbs, who like wasn't bad. even yeah, who wasn't even with them during training camp to be their starting quarterback. The Patriots have accidentally tanked. Their roster <laughs> yeah, is just yeah. so bad. They thought right. they were going to be decent that it's not the players aren't trying. It's the offensive line isn't good enough. Pathetic. The weapons are not good enough. And if you do move on from some of these players at the trading deadline, it's going to make losing even easier for you. I, I don't see how they even keep this competitive the next two weeks. Now, the Bills, Josh Allen owns the Patriots. Now, yeah. I understand. They beat him in the win game. Congratulations, Mac threw the ball three times. Other than that, Josh Allen does whatever he wants against the Patriots. Stephon Diggs does whatever he wants against yeah. the Patriots. They did do some creative stuff and some nice stuff against Miami, but guess who played in that game? Christian Gonzalez and Matthew Judon. You don't have Christian Gonzalez or Matthew Judon anymore, so I feel like that's going to be an ugly game for the Patriots. The in winnable Miami. games would, yeah, the winnable games would be like the Giants. Because yes, they well. stink. Washington, because of the way Howell plays. Howell will throw you the ball. He <laughs> makes some crazy throws. He'll make some big plays, but he will turn the football over. So it's those type of games where you could see being yeah. winnable. But really, other than that, there's not a lot of winnable games on the schedule. Broncos, actually. I guess. Yeah, like we mentioned. Yeah, the Broncos. That's that's a winnable game. Because the Broncos. The Jets. <laughs> yeah. I know they're I, better. I don't but... know, man. I think that streak's going to come to an end. Yeah, I really do, because I mean, Zach Wilson right now is playing better than Mac. He's not turning the football over and they won that game against the Eagles. But so it's Buffalo at Miami, Washington, Indy, Indy's winnable. That that's is that the Germany game? Yeah, I believe it is. Yeah, that's actually a winnable game, too, because Minshew stinks. Giants after the bye, Chargers. Well, Bill has had six. There's more winnable games on here than I thought. You mentioned, of course, the Broncos. Pittsburgh, I just feel like that defense will eat Mac alive, but you got the Chiefs, man. Chiefs. Oof. That's going to be ugly. <laughs> Christmas uh, Eve, though. Why do they have to have this I game know. on Christmas Eve? It's going to ruin Christmas Eve this, for all like, of New England. Peyton, uh, Russell Wilson was going to work. They've been on primetime like four weeks already this year. It's crazy. Yeah, like we, should be able to, team. we should be able to put together a petition where the residents of New England and the residents of Colorado can agree. This game should be moved. Boycott it. Yeah, none of us want this to ruin our Christmas. Okay, nobody wants to watch this game whatsoever. I'll give the the NFL credit. Like, they usually put this together on their own. Like, they want eyeballs. Like, there's no way they want this game on. I know they technically, like, can't. It's on NFL Network. But you got to think they're they're working on this, right, to get rid of this game. I hope so, man. I don't want to watch it on Christmas Eve. I want to be having fun. I want to be doing that. Celtics play the next day, too. They play the Lakers. Oh, Lakers, right? Yeah, that'll be the intriguing game. All right, so I did want to mention this, Jamie, before we leave. So Dave Dombrowski now has a chance to get back to the World Series. And for the second straight year since he's gone to Philly, he'll have, he could have two trips to the World Series. And I was reminded of this yesterday when I was watching Nate Evaldi pitch in the ALCS against the Astros, which, by the way, at the time we're recording, they have a 2-0 series lead. On the Astros, I'm obviously rooting for the Rangers to win that series, right? Which is awesome. Nate was great in that game. He got out of a 
bases loaded jam in the fifth where he got struck out El Tuve, then he got Bregman to ground out. It was a huge moment in the game. So going back to 2018 when Dave Dombrowski was running the Red Sox organization, at the trading deadline, he picked up Nate Evaldi for Jalen Beeks. Jalen Beeks, okay, fine. He's a prospect, all that, not a high-level prospect, and he's had an injury since he's gone to Tampa as well. But Nathan Evaldi since then, in the playoffs, 7-2, and 62-2, and two-thirds, a 287 ERA, and a 0.94 whip. He's won all three of his starts this postseason, obviously, at the time of the recording before Game 3. The, the Rangers still haven't lost a postseason game. They're undefeated. He had nine strikeouts against the Astros, a team that's one of the best in all of Major League Baseball at avoiding strikeouts. It's crazy to He's think. A gamer. Yeah, it's crazy to think how good Evaldi's been in the postseason since then. And it's crazy to think of how big of an overreaction the Dave Dombrowski firing was at the time. He won three straight divisions. And then 10 months after he wins the World Series, you move on from the guy. It's really incredible to think back to that. And now you're in the market for a new general manager. And this guy, it looks really bad for ownership. Think about it. Theo won after he went to Chicago. He won a World Series. There's a real chance that Dave Dombrowski could be hoisting up a World Series title after he leaves, or not he leaves, he's forced out of the Red Sox organization. He's fired. It's crazy to think about how bad the Red Sox look in hindsight, considering the fact that the guy that they hired as his replacement, they just had to fire, what, a month and a half ago. And so Chad Jennings had the story at The Athletic because now we're starting to see some of the candidates for the job. So he wrote this in The Athletic. Great piece by Chad Jennings, if you haven't seen it. In the past two weeks, the Boston Red Sox's search for a new head of baseball operations has run into multiple roadblocks as notable candidates, including Dodgers general manager Brandon Gomes and Phillies GM Sam Fold, have declined to interview for the job. They've had a hard time lining this one up, said one person who's spoken to Red Sox officials about the job. Another industry insider insisted such rejection is not unusual, especially early in the process. Okay, so maybe that's like the thing you're holding on to. Ownership, though, has shown fleeting commitment to its past three heads of baseball operations, none of whom lasted more than four full seasons. According to multiple sources or multiple people with knowledge of the process, Gomes, Fold, and Twins president of baseball operations, Derek Falvey, have all declined to interview for the job. Now, they are having James Click has been mentioned. Kim Ang, of course, was she decided not to go back to Miami because they hired somebody over her in Miami. So she didn't want to go back. Eddie Romero, of course, is the in-house candidate. And we're seeing some other guys in, in terms of guys coming in, out in this process here in terms of that could get the job. Thad Levine, who works for the Twins, could be part of this. He's somebody that's really huge on analytics. I mentioned James Click is another guy. I saw my buddy Rob Bradford. He put Neil Huntington out there, which I want no part of that. And we can get into the candidates in greater detail as the process goes on. But the point being, this is what I've been saying for weeks about this job, is it's not appealing because eventually when you treat people the way that you've treated people that are running your baseball department, other people are not going to want to do this. You think about it from Sam Fold's perspective, who, as I've said on multiple occasions, I don't even want Sam Fold for the job. And I understand it. He's working under Dave Dombrowski. That's my point of why I don't want him. It's like, we know Dave's making all those decisions, right? It's not Sam Fold. Dave Dombrowski's making all those decisions. Mm -hmm. Brandon Gomes, that is somebody that I mentioned off the top when this whole thing started. That is a guy that I'd be interested in. New England ties, but more importantly, he's been working for a good front office with the Dodgers. So that one makes sense to me. 
James Click's an interesting candidate. But the fact that you have Brandon Gomes and Sam Fold, who'd never been a GM, never yeah. run a baseball department. He doesn't want to interview. Now, maybe part of that, too, is there could be a weird dynamic. Remember, he was up for the managerial position at the same time as Cora. But also, he works with Dave every day. Dave Nabrowski's probably like, uh, yeah, you don't want to do that, right. Sam. You don't want to do that. You don't want to work for them. So that's my whole issue with the process in terms of, and we'll get into the candidates in greater details as process, process continues, as I said. But just the fact that you're the Boston Red Sox and this job is not appealing, you only have yourself to blame. This should be an appealing job. And even from a player perspective, we know the farm system has improved dramatically. I mean, that's the one thing you can give Haim a lot of credit for. But even the major league team, they need some work defensively and they get to fix fix some things. But Tristan Casas looks like a real player. Brian Bale looks like he's going to be in the rotation for the foreseeable future. I like what we saw from Duran this season. And even if he's not here long term, that's certainly a piece that you could move Mm -hmm. in the future. So there are some nice pieces here. And you start to think, I like Abreu too. I think that kid's going to be a stud. That was one trade that Haim definitely got right, the Vasquez trade. I really like Abreu. But the point being is, this is one of the biggest baseball markets in the country. And guys that have never been, guys that have never run an organization are saying, no, no, we're good. We we don't want to interview. That's where the Red Sox are at. It's embarrassing. And then we're watching the guy that ran the organization in the past about to go to another World Series. I know, it's tough. And not, not to mention, I mean, they have a, a ton of uh, payroll flexibility in the next couple of years too. They can. It's like a GM has a big farm system and a ton of cash to spend, and they're like, no, thank you. But I think too, I mean, you didn't mention, but it's like they, they don't have a big track record. They fire all their GMs, and then they're like, okay, so you can come in, we might fire you, and you can't pick your manager, and you can't pick any of the front office around you. It's like, uh, okay, like... They're, they could they have steps they could take to make this job more attractive that they're not taking to get the like I want Cora to stay I'm just saying like from an outside point of view you'd want to pick your your guys right yeah well I think it's that's another thing that Chad Jennings mentioned in the piece in terms of some people look at that as a good thing that you have mm-hmm. a World Series manager some people look at it as Alex Cora has a lot of power within the yeah. organization. For certain candidates, I think this would be a good thing. Like Kim Ang, who has a relationship with Cora going back to the days when Cora played for the Dodgers in the early 2000s. Like that one, that connection would make a lot of sense, right? Because if you go back to her moves recently with the Marlins, she was trying to get to the playoffs, which they ultimately did get to the playoffs this past season. If you go to the Red Sox at this point, you're in win now mode. So a lot of people would want Cora. But I understand that if you're coming in as a GM and you just want to totally rebuild, maybe you'd want to pick your own manager. So I do understand it from that perspective as well. And the full dynamic would just be weird, right? And Cora is the guy that <laughs> yeah. beat you out for the job. And as I've said right. on multiple occasions, I don't want Fold getting the job anyway. But it's just, it's 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 an interesting dynamic that this team is dealing with right now. But I think the most embarrassing thing is the ownership group. How do you not feel, just to use the word again, completely embarrassed right now? Mookie Betts just had one of the best seasons in Major League Baseball. Kyle Schwarber, they weren't even close to that deal. He had a home run in game one against Arizona. He's had great postseason moments since he left the Red Sox. The guy that you said, hey, wasn't great for our job anymore in terms of running the organization. He's on the verge of going back to his second World Series, not to mention the fact that you had to fire your own guy. Like, I just don't know how the Red Sox aren't completely embarrassed. Oh, and another guy that you had within the organization has been the best starting pitcher Outside of Zach Wheeler in the postseason this year, in native Aldi. Right. So all these like all these tentacles across the league that have Red Sox connections. 
and you're the ownership group where this is all happening under. It's really been incredible to watch this. So I don't know if it's the ownership group has to show more interest in this specific venture, not other ventures. But what we've seen over the past few years is bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. Yeah, well, maybe a little embarrassment is a good thing. I mean, they're they're getting what they sowed. And I, I, like you said, Henry's been checked out the past few years. So hopefully, I mean, it seemed like they literally got embarrassed by the Mookie bets coming to Fenway. And maybe that led to Bloom leaving. So maybe they're going to wake up and maybe good things ahead because of that. I hope, man. I hope because I do think that there could be a quick turnaround here. Aaron Nola's a free agent. Yeah. I know he's in his 30s, but that guy's going to give you close to 200 innings every year. At least he's a solid pitcher. And there's a lot of free agent pitchers Otani. that are out there. Blake Snell is out there. Yeah, I don't know about the Otani thing. He's having <laughs> TJ, too. I just, I don't know. I, I, we'll Come see on. about the Otani. I mean, I would definitely want Otani, obviously, but we'll see about that one. And the point being is you could turn this around quickly. And, mm-hmm. like, I know that if Dave Dombrowski was here, like, say he was her- inheriting this job, what he would do? He would go sign two starting pitchers. Yeah. He'd probably sign... Um, another reliever to help strengthen that bullpen a little bit. And he'd go from there. He would figure this out. And this is what, this is why I say this job could be easy. Two starting pitchers, you have a pretty good offensive team. And by the way, you have a catcher. I think Wong could be the catcher long-term. Yeah, the, um, I like Wong. The, what you get in terms of the bat is a plus. He's a good defensive catcher, obviously has a good arm. So there are pieces here. It's just whether or not whoever, that's why they have to get this right. And that's why I think there's so many names in this search is they have to get this thing right this has to be a slam dunk but man crazy to see how the mighty have fallen you got the celtics who are favorites to win the nba championship you got the bruins who have played well to begin the season i believe that's going to be a playoff team and then you have the red Sox and the patriots and really the patriots are unless you they're the toughest mix if you get the quarterback fine and the guy i really like now is drake may too obviously caleb williams is going to go number one if you get him awesome (laughs) <laughs> but Penix played well against Oregon. That kid's, he's a good player, even though he's probably, he's like 35, I think, at this point. I remember when him, <laughs> he was on Indiana. But I like Drake May, too. Drake May, that guy's got some ridiculous off-platform off, uh, off throws as well. I You know you mentioned Penix with uh, Doug Kyle last week, so I was watching the Washington highlights. And as I was watching the highlights, I'm like, who's this, this Oregon quarterback? And I thought Bo Nix looked really good, too. Like, he's making some athletic throws. Yeah. Bo Nix, another guy that's old, but yeah. he's been around forever in terms of he was at Auburn, then he was at Oregon. But yeah, I think Mac was old too, right? Wasn't he like twenty four when he drafted? No, I, I think Mac was reasonably young because mm-hmm. he only had like basically the one year as a starter. He had half of his first season because Tua got hurt, and then he got basically the second full year. The Mac era. How will you remember it? <laughs> I won't. I'll forget about it. <laughs> All right, Jamie. Good stuff, man. Thank you, Brian. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 
1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York. 